into 2019 and ahead of the first MotoGP season in a long while without Danny Pedrosa, we're going to have a look at what we're all going to miss. Welcome to Bike Live. Let's go! Yes, for the first time in 2019, welcome everyone to Bike Live here on Motorsport 101. Uh, as we look back on a magnificent career uh, for Danny Pedrosa uh, in the Grand Prix World Championship. Spanning all classes, he's won in all of them. Uh, the only thing he hasn't won is a championship. But without question, a MotoGP Hall of Famer and deserving of the accolade. We'll talk about the career that led him to that honour. Uh, some of the highs, some of the lows. Uh, and plenty of the injuries, because uh, there were no lack of those. Uh, but what a credit Danny Pedrosa has been to the sport of motorcycle racing. And uh, given that his uh, career actively as a rider, uh, as far as racing is concerned, has now come to an end, we feel it was right that we took a bit of time to look back on uh, everything that Danny Pedrosa has brought to motorcycle racing. We will also, given that it's been a month since we last spoke to you, uh, cover all of the uh, important news that has broken over Christmas and the new year. Um, I'm Lewis Sutterby, in case you've forgotten since Christmas. Joining me uh, for the first time in this new year, Happy New Year, to Andre Harrison. Drain the time we've since we've last spoke. Neither of our football teams has lost a match. Immense. It's been a, glor it's been a glorious time. We should take more month-long breaks. Yeah, like, I, yeah I say, like, have Hull City get, get promoted back and have United win the league. Sounds like a plan for Harrison. Yes, but, remarkable uh, scenes. Just remarkable scenes. <laughs> How was your Christmas? Good? Yeah, very good Christmas. Um, we got rid of some Portuguese dude. I mm. had pings and blankets of macaroni cheese for Christmas dinner, and it was delicious. And um, Jorge Lorenzo is now in orange. I'm deeply concerned. Um, it was it was a strange Christmas. I'm still recovering from, but uh, apparently we're back now. So hooray for bikes and whatnot. Yes, yeah. hell officially froze over this week when I saw that launch from uh, from Repsol Honda, uh, which we'll talk about very very shortly, um, because there there is still plenty of news that has broken, as I mentioned over the course of the winter break and uh, we're already in that period of, uh, of motorcycle racing and indeed motorsports it happens in cars too where we're getting into launch season um two motor gp teams two premier motor gp teams the two that we're expecting to contest the world championship this year in motor gp have launched their new lineups and new liveries um for the upcoming season which we'll discuss uh, very very shortly um and in the time that it takes us to record again on bike live which will probably be in a fortnight uh, not only will all of the other teams have launched, but also the Sepang test will have taken place. And we'll look ahead to that um, before we go at the end of tonight's show. Uh, so, before that, the places you can find us, standing on Facebook, facebook.com uh, forward slash motorsport101. On Twitter, we are at motorsport underscore 101. Uh, our website is motorsport101.com. You can also find show highlights on our YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash motorsport101. Um, and uh, you can also find our podcast... Basically, we're all good podcasts are found on uh, Apple Podcasts and now, Dre, on Spotify. We're on Spotify now. So, yeah, if you ever get sick and tired of replaying the same five tunes like I do on Spotify every month, yeah, yeah we're now on there instead. So, yeah, they, they just recently had a, a new beta program for podcasters. So, yeah, we signed up for that and we're on there now. So, if anyone else... Uh, out there swears by using Spotify, which I know a lot of people do. People have been asking me about this because, funny, funnily enough, someone, I don't know who this was, had uploaded about 60 of our old episodes on Spotify as standard episodes. And now, we're at Motorsport 101. I, I, we've always had it 
a direct download link on SoundCloud. We're not fussy about things like that. Like, I'm firmly of the camp of pretty much all publicity is good publicity. So mm. we've always had open downloads, share it around and whatnot. As I've always said, if you're just going to publish it online, just give us some credit. And, and, and that's absolutely fine by me for the record. But uh, we are now officially on Spotify. So all of our library is on there. It, it's, it's hooked in via RSS with our SoundCloud page. So again, it'll be updated exactly the same time everybody else gets it so for those guys who swear by spotify you can follow us on there instead you can and if you like us so much that you'd like to back us financially you can do so at patreon.com forward slash motorsport 101 uh, five dollar backing gets you early access to both of our weekly or at the moment fortnightly shows until we get into the new season uh, of motorsport both on two wheels and on four uh, and ten dollar backing gives you the opportunity to listen into these uh, podcast live as they are recorded by joining our discord server although we have opened it up a little bit to the public uh, over the course of this winter break um but if you back to the ten dollar level you can listen into our podcast live uh, as they are recorded and thank you to steve who's doing that uh, right now um right then let's uh, first get into the news um and the news that has broken in the last month basically since we've last spoken and um as i mentioned earlier on this is a a bit of a special show dedicated to the career of Danny Pedroza. And we're going to start the news by talking about injuries to Danny Pedroza. Uh, who, of course, his active career as a racer has now come to an end. But he is still a test rider, officially, um, for KTM. Uh, but, Dre, unfortunately for the uh, the boys in Orange, their new test rider won't be featuring for them at Sepang. No, and probably won't be for quite some time. Um, it's It's... it's... Danny's hurt himself again, everybody. Um, sigh. Uh, sad faces all around. Um, he's, I think he's having some sort of uh, experimental stem cell surgery on his right shoulder, um, which I think he had just after Christmas, I believe. Um, it, was, it was a couple of weeks ago now um, since he's had that. But, uh, yeah, we're just catching you up here on some of the older news. But, uh, yes, um, a shoulder injury for Danny P. He won't be, obviously, he won't be being able to really take part in that a new KTM uh, test rider role he's got probably for quite some time um mm. 40 which is a shame but uh you know that's like let's be real here it's danny pedrosa let's not know this is the first time that's happened unfortunately um but uh of course we wish him a speedy recovery that was, you know, we, we all know that danny's a, a warrior and i'm sure we'll talk about it um in future to see he's had his fair share of being on the injury on the injury reports but uh yeah, hopefully a quick one for Danny, and he's uh, back on the bike in some capacity soon. Well, the sheer number of injuries, which, uh, as Dre mentioned, we'll talk about a little bit later on, have probably kind of led to this. Danny Pedroza said himself, um, because he's had several fractures um, of his uh, collarbone, um, which is the collarbone that he's having operated on, or he has been operated on, the double stress fracture of his right collarbone, because he's injured that several times in his career, um he says it's left it uh, sclerotic is the uh, medical term for it basically saying that the middle part of it doesn't have enough blood flow to it and it's creating osteoporosis uh bone weakening um, in other words um so it basically needs in his words an effective solution to regenerate the bone and achieve adequate recovery um and uh after going to several tests and medical consultations the clear recommendation is the total recovery and bone health um so he's expected to be fighting fit again as fit as you can be when you've had as many injuries as Danny Pedroza has um later this year so KTM given that they are still a factory team that has concessions available to them they can do plenty of testing through the year so Danny Pedroza will still be plenty of use to KTM but he won't be riding for them at the Sepang test which starts in well around about a week and a half really from now uh I'll probably about a week as you listen to this if you're listening on the download um in Malaysia 
Um, so it'll be, be down to Paul Espargaro and Joan Zarco to do the uh, the factory test riding. Of course, they do now have two extra bikes with their Tech 3 team as well. So it might not be the killer blow that it might have been in previous years for KTM. Um, but it is a shame for Danny Pedrosa. Um, two teams have launched their new 2019 programs this week. And as I mentioned earlier on, it is the two teams that we're expecting, with all due respect to Yamaha and Suzuki, to be fighting mm. for the championship uh, this year. Starting with the Ducati team, um, who launched theirs uh, at the back end of last week. Um, new livery, Dre, slightly different shade of red, and a brand new mission statement on the side of their bike. Ugh. Mission win now on the side. As if I want to be reminded mm. of Ferrari's 2018 season. By I was like, oh great, so it's so 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 all the Italian brands are going with Mission Win now. Now, ah, oh, delightful, my favourite. Although to be fair, it is a gorgeous. I do love I it. Do I do love, love this deeper shade of red. I do love the deeper red. I do love like this. It's the it's like the massive majority colour because I know last year's was a lot of white and a lot of grey on there as well, which was a bit of an odd choice um, for them. But I do love the majority red livery. I think it's a very rich red. I do I do like that a lot. I'm a big fan of that. Um, so yeah, like, I, I can't I, from that standpoint. I can't complain. It's a very solid looking livery. Um, and uh, yeah, the Panagale has always been a, a beautiful bike, and there's Mondeshi GP18 and now 19. Is a, has always been a very pretty thing. Um, so yeah, no complaints from me <coughs> on, on that one. I just don't like the blooming great big mission win now. Goddamn sponsor on the fairing. Like, mm. like I don't need to be reminded of this. Okay, we get it. You're trying to advertise tobacco without not really advertising tobacco. It's a pain. Yeah, it's like Ducati are going to great lengths to let us know where their money's coming from. Because not only have we got the Mission Winnow uh, livery, courtesy of Philip Morris International, but we've also got the Audi Sport stickers on the side of their mm. bikes for the first time, which um, I think is their way of putting to bed any rumours that Ducati may be sold. Uh, so so it's pretty clear that Audi, the Audi uh, VW Audi group are pretty keen to have Ducati um, under their umbrella, and um, it's proving quite a, a, a profitable organisation for them. And they're hoping it will become a championship-winning uh, organisation for them this year too. Um, Yamaha's factory team are also going to be having a change of livery this year, which we'll no doubt tell you about on our next podcast. Uh, given that their new name is Monster Energy Yamaha, expect it to be a lot of black and a lot of green. Um, expect, it to look, <laughs> expect it to look like the Tech 3 bike did last year. Uh, in all probability. Um, but sticking with Ducati for a moment, um, of course, they launched their new factory team, which if you've been living under a rock or if you didn't follow the news last year, is now Andrea Dovizioso and Danilo Petrucci. Um, Petrucci, mm-hmm. Petrucci looks absolutely beaming, by the way, to be in factory leathers. Um, He's so happy. Yeah, he just looked like boyhood dream come true. Um, but <laughs> to be fair, although it's... Test, t- launch is usually very, very dull, and this was no exception. Um, as... <laughs> As um, they went behind the scenes, Gavin Emmett did his best to dress it up as an exciting event. We had the uh, <laughs> we, we had the Italian whose um, whose idea it was to come up with this mission winner concept, trying to explain what it meant. Um, and we all sort of switched off in our droves as he basically tied him with himself in knots, trying to explain how he came up with the slogan. Um, but but perhaps the one big piece of news that did come from that that launch Ray, was I don't think it was necessarily intended as such, but Claudio Domenicali, the CEO of Ducati, did find a, a nice indirect way of putting one last boot into the side of Jorge Lorenzo's solar plexus. Mm. I believe the quote was the lines of, like, it's now it's nice to finally have a team where both its riders are working together towards the same goal. Mm. Um, 
Now, Dovi is still there. He's obviously still the constant in this Ducati team yeah. for the last few years, and now Petrucci's there. I wonder what that says about the former teammate who's been jettisoned out of the team from last year. Um, yeah, I, I, like again, like Domenicali, you're fooling no one here. We know exactly who you're talking about um, mm. on that one, and uh, I'll leave I'll leave the jury out for that one. But uh, as I, I put it out on there on Twitter yesterday. It's like I do find it kind of funny that. Jorge Lorenzo has now pretty much been in like three team blowups now in like the last, what shall we say, half decade or so. Um, mm. He seems to be the common trend here, and that's probably not a good thing for Lorenzo in the long run. But hey, he's joined up with Marquez now. What's the worst that could possibly happen? <laughs> yeah, right? can't see anything go wrong. More than that in a second. Um, but it, it kind of confirms what I think a lot of us suspected, Dre, even though Ducati didn't outright come out and say it, um, that. It, it, it is a change of strategy from the uh, Mission Winner Ducati team, which we're not going to call them that every time, but that is their official name now. Um, in God. that, they, they clearly they clearly don't think that the two number ones strategy to a team is the way of winning a championship, do they? Um, and, yeah. you know, you could argue that having Hogan Lorenzo there didn't necessarily cost them the 2017 championship, but he didn't exactly make it easy for them, did he? Um, which you'd expect no. you'd, you'd expect one of your own riders to make life easier for you, not more difficult. But in Sepang and Valencia, Lorenzo was more of a complication um, than a teammate to Davizio. So, um, but whilst Danilo Petrucci won't, in his own mind, be going there to be Dobby's lackey or to play the supporting role, it seems as if they're although they're not seeing it directly. That's what Ducati see Petrucci as, and surely, assuming everything goes as we're expecting. Surely Davizioso will be the big winner out of this. Well, that's that's the logic I've got. I mean, if, if Yamaha has taught me anything from the last half decade, it's that having two number ones don't work in MotoGP. Like, we saw it with Rossi and Lorenzo, and we saw it especially in 2016, where in 15 they got away with it because their bike was just clearly better than the Hondas. But the year afterwards in 2016... Um, both Yamahas took so many points off each other in in fights against Marquez. Marquez had a basically had a, a golden goose and was a, and was able to just cakewalk his way to the title in the end because Yamaha was so self destructive and that, that's always kind of been their mentality by having such a strong team of Rossi and Lorenzo, two very big character sort of riders. And Ducati have been doing that. Ducati, I've always said they're like the big free agent team. They like the big flashy signing. Um, they you know, from Stoner and Rossi and Hayden and Dovi, Crutchlow before. They've always stocked up on big name riders. And this is the first <laughs> time really in, in modern times where they've not had this quote unquote super team. Where they've you know, Petrucci, you know, he's a great rider, but we know he's not in that alien ballpark of, of Dovi, Marquez, Rossi, Vinales, Lorenzo, etc. He's he's kind of probably in that next stage down. And it, it looks like, as you say, they're going towards a one-two strategy. I mean, the way they've worded it and the way they've uh, gone around it, they, I don't think they've made it any any secret by any stretch that Petrucci's basically been backup backup man to, uh, to to Dovi here. And you're absolutely right. Dovi's the big winner here. We all know he is good enough to carry a team. Um, he, is, he is now probably the second best rider in the world. Um, he is more than good enough, you know, to be able to lead a team going forward. He can challenge for the title if everything falls to place. And Petrucci's probably not going to get in his way because we saw it last season that Lorenzo came good at the completely wrong time. It ended yeah. up just... Just as they got rid of him. 
Yeah, just as he got rid of him, Lorenzo got good at the wrong time, and then they just started taking points off each other, and it all just got problematic to the point where the two of them pretty much didn't like each other on the way out. Um, it, it it was a toxic situation, and as the man hardly came out and proved it was obvious which side of the fence they were leaning towards on that one. Um, they know where their bread was buttered. <laughs> I mean, I've said this from day one. They've like when Dovi had that win at Mugello a couple of years ago, and he got the hero's welcome back at the factory. Literally, the entire Ducati factory staff chanted his name. You knew that was his team. Hmm. Um, and that like he's the Alan Prost of that team now. He he, he runs things around here, so. Yeah, Dovi is absolutely going to be the biggest winner out of this scenario. It's just a matter of now is that do they have something in the tank to tackle Marquez? <laughs> Which brings us nicely to Repsol Honda, um, yeah. who, who, as we've discussed um, months ago, uh, have signed Holly Lorenzo. Now, Ducati have gone for the one-two strategy. They clearly feel that having a number one and a number two rider, even if they don't directly call them that, is the best way to go. Now, we, we could argue Repsol Honda have gone the other way. They have now got two number ones. Although, Dre, um, could you argue, with all due respect to Olga Lorenzo, a five-times world champion, that in the current era of MotoGP, no matter how good you are, any rider in the same team of Mar- Marquez is the number two rider? Yeah, I mean, it's hard not to argue that point. I mean, I said that, that Honda, and I remember watching the test at Valencia the day after the season finished and having Spolders talking about the state of Repsol Honda and, you know... The, the seemingly trivial, the seeming nature of the fact that he said, "Well, it's such a specialized bike now that really the only person that can fully utilize it is Marquez." Um, so, I don't think the transition is going to be quite so bad for Lorenzo coming from Ducati over to Honda. I think they're a bit more similar in that aspect um, compared to going from Yamaha to Ducati. But I do think this is still going to be Marquez's team for the foreseeable future, and. Uh, yeah, I I think Lorenzo is uh, walking into hell here with Marquez on the same bike. I mean, they're all they were they were very pally on camera during their team launch a couple of days ago. Which mm. yeah, because well, we're going to come to that. They they launched their mm. team uh, in Madrid on Wednesday, and mm. <clears throat> I don't know whether it was just me, Dre, but even though this news has been official since midway through last year, we knew Lorenzo was going to Repsol Honda, but mm. just just the images of yeah. Lorenzo and Marquez side-by-side side in Repsol Honda liveries, shaking hands and smiling with a 99 on the front of a Repsol Honda. I had, to double, I had to double take. <laughs> it's like, how, how did we get to this point? What, what, what is going on here? Pigs like, are flying. Yeah, pigs are flying. Someone's been, someone's fired a pig out of a cannon over my house, clearly. Um, I don't understand this. <laughs> but it, it's funny because I still remember Marquez's like, third ever career race at Haref like it was yesterday where he basically barged Lorenzo off the apex with a block pass at his own corner. Lorenzo finger wagging like, no, 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 you don't do this in the big boy sports, son. Uh, refused to shake his hand and like, Five years later, they're now teammates, and you know, thumbs up in you know, thumbs up in the back, and Lorenzo praising Marquez's achievements on Twitter, and they're all pally at the moment. I don't think this is going to last, kids. No, I really don't. But um, hey, prove me wrong, Jorge. Yeah, prove Do- me wrong. Dovi certainly so, hopes so. Yeah, definitely. But uh, yeah, Lorenzo in white and orange is a very, very weird look. So that's, that's going to take some getting used to. I thought Ducati was mad enough, but you know, Ducati, Ducati love a free agency, dude. So 
Um, that one didn't surprise me quite so much, but him in orange with Marquez as a teammate, smiling, shaking hands. <laughs> well, what's going on? I, I, it's 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 surreal. I, I it's it's crazy seeing that. Mm, and the fact that Repsol Honda and both Lorenzo and Marquez themselves are referring to it as the dream team. <laughs> Um, that, is, which, that is tempting face. Yeah, exactly. Holy <laughs> Lorenzo, in the official press release that Repsol Honda sent out after the, the launch, said, my main objective of 2019 is, first of all, to be 100% recovered, which we'll come on to in a second, uh, mm. and to be able to demonstrate on track that we really are the dream team that people are talking about. Um, but these are two riders with rather large egos, which isn't a criticism of them, because all great riders, all great champions have great egos. That's what makes them what they are. Um, but yeah. ultimately, one of them is going to have to come second um, mm-hmm. to the other. Um, and whoever that is, is clearly not going to be very happy about it. Um, and the fact that Jorge Lorenzo is going into this new season, Dre, injured. Um, I mean, he's he's not going to be at the Sepang test, um, which takes place at the end of this month, beginning of February. Um, and he's, he says his hope is to be 95% fit for the first round in Qatar. Um, it is a concern um, Lorenzo, this is kind of a legacy of the injury that he sustained all the way back in Thailand um, when he broke his scapoid um, um, or he broke his wrist and he's now since broken the same left scapoid in training in Verona um, in uh, sort of preparation for this season um, and you know, it, they tried their best to cover it up but you could see when he was in full team leathers at the launch he had that strapping, that protection on his wrist on oh, his yeah. left wrist. Um, so they, despite their best efforts, it was clear to see that he wasn't fully fit. Um, and he tried beating Mark Marquez at the best of times is difficult. Beating him on the same bike is near impossible. Beating him on the same bike when you're not even fully fit. Jorge Lorenzo's he's almost on a hiding to nothing before he's even started. Yeah, this seems like damage limitation right from the get-go. And as I mentioned before, Marquez's arguably strongest two rounds are right at the front mm. of the season. It's I mean, like Marquez isn't fully fit at the moment either, but even so. No. I mean, to be fair, Marquez has said himself he's probably going to be two or three months before he's 100% himself um, from that shoulder he had. But he's out here jogging already. Um, <laughs> like, so for, By all accounts, it looks like... The shoulders healing well if he's able to go out and take you know yeah, he's a rubber. With it. He clearly is like it's it's, it's ridiculous. Um, so yeah, it's it's one of those things where it's like okay, the blessing here is that Marquez isn't fully fit himself. But you look at the calendar. You're 95. He was talking about being 95 percent fit for Qatar. Marquez lost Qatar last year by a nose. And then rounds two and three are the Circuit of the Americas and Argentina, two Marquez staple hole tracks. I mean, Marquez's winning record there probably doesn't do it justice given the amount of shenanigans that have gone down in Argentina over the years. But we all yeah. know he's ludicrously fast round there. And of course, Cota, literally unbeatable. Um, so you've got two Marquez banker rounds right at the start of the year and Lorenzo's going to be recovering from injury. It could get ugly quite mm. quickly here. If Lorenzo isn't anywhere near fully fit by them, but that that risk seems like it's a problematic thing. I mean, <clears throat> what if he crashes on that during a session? Like, is that yeah, forward? yeah? Because the the, the the Thailand crash was three and a half months ago. Yeah, like these clearly got some sort of lingering arm problem where, like, they said that same injury was four, it was only four months ago, and he's still hurting from it, and obviously he's 
like he was in apparently so much pain he had to be rushed in, in into hospital when it happened so yeah like it this was bad by all accounts this is bad and it raises an eyebrow for like like what's lorenzo's future going to be like here given that he's clearly hurting and that is clear that that wrist is not is nowhere near 100 percent, especially even after he's training and he crashes in training and he's hurt himself again so I hope there's nothing. I hope there's not a deeper significance here going on with Renzo, and it is just what it is at face value, where it's just a, another break. But it is a bit concerning that he's had, you know, two, you know, two fractures like that in the space of four months, and he's had to have surgery on it twice. Mm, so like yeah. the first time he missed four rounds. Exactly. So, um, although it all looks sweetness and light at Repsol Honda, the dream team, as they're calling themselves for this new season, and yeah, it was an amazing sight to have Lorenzo Marquez at the launch with Alex Crevier and Mick Doohan flanking them um, in oh. their in their historic uh, Repsol Honda liveries with the bikes that they were so successful on, uh, respectively. Uh was an incredible sight. It was a very well-done launch um, from Repsol Honda uh, in Madrid earlier this week. Um, but we're going to shift our focus to World Superbikes for the time being and the World Superbike paddock across all classes um, because they've been testing uh, this week, yesterday and today, actually, um, as we talk now uh, on Thursday, January the 24th. Uh, and their two-day test has come to an end. And have a guess who was fast. Well, you all know who was fastest. It was Jonathan Ray, uh, the, rain, the reigning four times world champion. Um, who was fastest? Not by much, though. He was uh, fastest on a 139.1, just two tenths clear of Alex Lowe's um, on the Patti Yamaha. Lowe's, who was fastest on the first day, so clearly a, a promising test, all things considered, um, for the Pata Yamaha official World Superbike team. Their GRT team was lost here this week, and it is going to be fiendishly difficult to tell their four bikes apart this year um, because the GRT, oh the GRT Yamaha team essentially has the exact same livery as the factory Pata team. Um, with uh, with Lowe's and Vandermark, and of course GRT have Cortese and Melandri. Um, so we kind of have four identical Yamahas out there next uh, uh, over the course of this season. Um, but Ray was fastest from Lowe's. Leon Haslam, of course, is Jonathan Ray's teammate now, was third fastest um, on a 139.5. Just ahead of Alvaro Bautista, uh, fourth fastest on the new Ducati V4 Panigale, with less than half a second off the outright pace, which... Obviously, we can only take these lap times at face value, but for a rider new to the class on a bike that's new in new, new full stop, that's promising for Ducati to be that close mm. to the front. Toprak Rasgatioglu was fifth on the Pachetti Kawasaki. Uh, Sandro Cortese, sixth already, top six on the GRT Yamaha, uh, which is promising for the reigning Super Sport champion. Uh, Vandermark, seventh there, Melandri, Ruben Rinaldi, and Chaz Davies. Uh, with DeAndre Mercado, 11th. Eugene Laverty, who's now on a Ducati for the Go 11 team, 11th. Uh, sorry, in 12th place. Jordi Torres, who's running for the Pedicini team in 13th. The BMW factory bikes of Tom Sykes and Marcus Reiterberg were 14th and 15th. Two seconds off the pace. Um, although no, no. They, they weren't running transponders that were recording lap times for much of the test. So how much we can truly glean from that is anyone's guess. Um, they mm. didn't actually record any lap times at all on day one, even though they were running around all day. So we don't quite know how fast they really are. Uh, and Alessandro Del Bianco uh, on the Altea MIE uh, racing bike um, was 16th. He's essentially on a third Honda. Because, uh, of course, Altea mm. are running the Morowaki back to Honda factory team, who were not at this test, um, interestingly, although, of course, they will mm. be at Phillip Island um, for the pre-season uh, test that takes place just before the opening round there. Um, Super Sport and Super Sport 300s were also there too um, but we're going to take you through their entry lists um, before we move on because they have been officially confirmed the 
final entry lists have now been published for all three classes. The World Superbike entry list has only 18 riders on it, which is a shame, but there is no lack of quality on it. Um, there are no sort of tail end Charlies on this entry list, and we'll run you through that in much greater detail when we preview the new season uh, in probably two shows' time. Um, but as far as the Super Sport edge list is concerned, I'll run you through it. Calio Racing, of course, winners of the championship last season with Sandro Cortese. Um, they've brought in another ex-Moto2 rider to try and retain the title with. It's Isaac Vinales, um, who will be riding for them, the Spaniard on the number 32, alongside, alongside Thomas Gradinger, uh, who was uh, Cluzel's team at NRT last season, had the odd good result. Uh, and Loris Cresson, so they're their three riders. NBA Augusta retained Rafael de Rosa, although, quite frankly, they'd have been stupid not to. Uh, with Federico right. Fellini uh, as his teammate. He's another rider out of Moto2. The Badal-Evan Bros team have possibly the strongest team on paper. Two Yamaha R6s, and their two riders are Randy Kriminaka and Federico Caracasulo. Um, mm. The CIA Landlord Insurance Honda team have Jules Danilo, another ex-Moto2 rider. Um, oh. And and although the entry list does say TBA, they have confirmed this week that it will be the Hungarian Peter Sebastian. Uh, Kawasaki Pacetti are riding uh, are racing with Lucas Mayas and Hikari Okubo. Uh, more on them in a moment. Uh, Yamaha GMT94 have picked up Jules Cluzel, last season's, well, perennial title challenger until the final round. And Corentin Perilari. Um, who impressed in the second half of last season when he arrived in the paddock. Um, World Sport Race Day is running two Hondas for Hannes Sommer and Jaime Van Sicklerus. The Gemar Corsa team are running Alfonso Coppola and Gabriele Ryu. Uh, Rob Hartog stays with the team Hartog against Kansas squad, the Dutchman. Nacho Calero will be riding for Oralac on a Kawasaki. Two ESS runners, um, which will be riding at the European rounds only. Uh, they are two Frenchmen, Xavier Navand and Gaetan Merton. Uh, Glenn Van Stralen, the uh, Dutchman who was in Supersport 300, he's now riding for the EAB racing team in Supersport 600. Maria Herrera is one of the high-profile additions to the Supersport Championship. Uh, she'll, be com- she'll be combining this with her Moto E program. She'll be riding for the MS racing team. Ayrton Badovini will be running a Kawasaki for Team Pedicini, and a Yamaha run by Team Toth will be ridden by Hector Barbara. Um, so, Dre, a few few things to pick out from there. Mm. I mean, first of all, I'm, I'm interested by the fact that there are a number now of ex-Moto2 sort of back-end riders who are now clearly looking at what Cortese has done and thinking that maybe Supersport's their best uh, future right. path. Um, Isaac Vinales, Jules Danilo, Federico Fellini, um, following the likes of Barbara and Cortese, of course, who've uh, and Krimenacker, we shouldn't forget, who, of course, have been in Moto2 but are now in Supersport. Um, but I want to talk about Lucas Mayas. Um, it was probably the big change from last season. Um, of yeah. course, it was a Yamaha-dominated championship last season, but I guess, are we this year, in 2019, going to find out just how good that Kawasaki ZX, ZX6R genuinely still is now that they've got Lucas Mayas on it? Yeah, well, this will be the litmus test, isn't it? Lucas Mayas has been one of the strongest guys in Supersport now for the last two years. Um, he was brilliant on a Yamaha, we all know that. But then again, a lot of riders were pretty brilliant on that Yamaha. Yeah, that that's four... that's the thing. You, you could argue last year that Yamaha was so strong because they had all the best riders on their bikes. And of course, Kawasaki lost to Foglu. Yeah, and Safoglu, we all know, was basically almost freakish. Like some sort of black magic voodoo was the only <laughs> yeah. reason he was, he was so fast on that Kawasaki compared to everybody else who seemingly struggled with it. So this will be the litmus test. If if Mahias is up there with a Kawasaki you know, ZX-6R, then you know, we'll know that, it, that he really is 
you know, one of the one you know, one or two of the you know best writers in the field. If he isn't, we all know that Kawasaki really is a dog, and uh, mm. he's made a terrible career choice. Um, it's 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 going to be one or the other, I'm afraid. Um, and because we all know Yamaha has been the you know the the premier super sport brand now for again for two or three years now, Yamaha have dominated the championship. We, we all saw that last season where they had five of the top six title contenders. More like Rafael De Rosa was a breath of fresh air on that MV. Um, everybody else was on the Yamahas. Um, whether that holds up remains to be seen. But yeah, Mahias is, is, is he's, he's the litmus test. We'll, we'll soon find out how the Kawasaki will stack will, will stack up with a you know born like a, a classified elite rider in the class in that sense. So yeah, well, that's going to be probably the most intriguing part of these new rider lineups. Mm, yeah, it is. It's going to be interesting to see how they get on. As far as the Yamaha teams are concerned, uh, because they they've all basically changed. NRT have gone. Um, although, to be fair, we, we fear that they might have even made the end of last season, so we're kind of grateful that they did to give Cluzel every chance of, of winning the title. Um, Cadio Racing, of course, have lost Cortese, but they've replaced him with Vinales uh, and Gradinger. Vinales hoping to be as good on a Yamaha as his cousin is. Um, but that Badal Evan Bros team surely is the strongest on paper, Dre, with Kriminaka and Caracasulo. Um, GMT94, though, with Corentin Perolari, who given that he was new to the class last year, did very well um, on the uh, the few outings he had. But I want to talk about Jules Cluzel, uh, who, of course, we always look to in Supersport because we're hoping the wall is eventually going to win a title. Um, but uh, have you seen his social media this week from the test? Uh, I, I have not, no. Well, I've got his Instagram uh, in front of me, and I don't think I'm wrong to be slightly concerned by this. Um, because we, we shouldn't forget what he what happened to him the last time we saw him on a bike in Qatar last year. For this year, on his Yamaha R6, he's going to be running a gear lever. Rather than a gear lever by his foot, he's going to be riding a gear lever on his right-hand handlebar, um, hmm. which is going to take some getting used to, because he clearly doesn't want to be changing gear with his left foot, given how badly he smashed his ankle up in Qatar last year, which has got to be a concern right. to me. Not only is he not clearly not 100% fit, but he's having to learn a whole new way of riding a motorcycle. Yeah, that's that's going to be a severe case of uh, work in progress by the sounds of it. I did not know this on the Instagram page that Cazella uh, basically fundamentally changed his bike. And yeah, that's, that's a great point. I mean, I don't think we, we, we mentioned it at the time. That was his braking ankle he smashed up. Um, and that's not good. Um, and now he's going to be basically going into a brand new season. Yes, we all know the Yamaha is a weapon. And we all know Cazell is, is most likely going to win multiple races on it next year, next season. But I'm not so sure about that now. Because, yeah, as you say, he's now got to fundamentally change his entire riding style. Um, which is such a prominent strength of Cazell's. He's... he's probably the best defensive rider on the planet and now he's got to change his braking mm. that's that is not a good combination of problems to have um we'll have to wait and see again how this plays out in in, in race trim and by, by the time the season starts up um in philip island but that is that is a trifle concerning that uh, he's now got to relearn how to basically stop a motorcycle properly um, and, and that is arguably the strongest part of Clazelle's arsenal. So, uh, 
Yeah, definitely one to be concerned about. Yeah, because yesterday, as we're speaking, Wednesday, uh, Wednesday the 23rd of, of January yesterday, the first day of the two-day Hereth test, was the first time he'd ever ridden the bike under that configuration. So, surely, given that these these riders naturally are creatures of habit, they, they have been used to riding a certain way, they all have their own styles, their own idiosyncrasies, it's not going to be an overnight job that for Clozel to get to grips with it and then learn how to ride it fast. So... Mm. we'll see how quickly he adjusts to that and we'll probably get our first answer in Phillip Island um, in around about a month's time. Um, because of course, World Superbikes, quite handily for us, starts very early, so it's only a month away now, um, the start of the new season. Um, World Super Sport 300 are going to have to wait a little longer. They start uh, an hour gone um, at the end of March, but they've also confirmed their entry list. The first big headline to take from this is there are 50 permanent entries on the Supersport 300 World Championship entry list for this season, which explains why they've brought in the last chance qualifying race um, for this year, because they're obviously not going to have enough grid slots to f- get put every rider on it. So we're going to have qualifying, we're then going to have, I forget the number, but it's around the 30 mark that are going to go straight through to the race itself on the Sunday. And then everyone who's outside of that cutoff are going to be in a last chance qualifying race where the top six make it in um, to the main race on the Sunday, which is going to be quite the spectacle um in 2019 we're essentially going to have two super spot 300 races a weekend one for the tail end charlies and then one for everyone else um on the sunday um i won't take you through the full entry list naturally because we'll be here till april um but there are some interesting names to bring you Uh, anna carrasco of course is back to defend her title she'll be running the number one plate um and she'll be riding for a new team well a new team to this class kawasaki provec world ssp 300 um, which, if you're not familiar, Provec is essentially the Spanish-run team that runs the Kawasaki Factory World Superbike outfit. Uh, so, so Anna Carrasco has got probably the strongest team in the whole paddock behind her for this year um, as she defends her title uh, in Supersport 300. Um, other interesting names to bring you, Mark Garcia. Yeah, if you remember his name, he was the inaugural Supersport 300 World Champion. He won the title in 2017. Um, and he's back to try and regain the title with the DS Junior team on number four. So we're going to have both um, existing Super Swap 300 world champions on the grid this year uh, in 2019. Uh, a number of the key names um, that you've seen in previous years are still around. Mika Perez, last year's runner-up. Um, he's still around uh, for the Scuderia Maranga racing team on a Kawasaki Ninja 400 alongside Borca Sanchez. Uh, Scott DeRue, who many will feel was cruelly robbed of a chance of winning the title with that mechanical and magnet core. Mm. Uh, he's staying with the Motoport Kawasaki team on a Ninja 400 um, alongside Robert Shopman. So they're retaining their all Dutch lineup. Um, all of the main runners from last season, with the exception of uh, Glenn, Glenn Van Straalen, who I've just mentioned to you, is running in Super Sport next year, um, are sticking around. Um, but yeah, it's a strong, strong field. But as, as I mentioned, 50 uh, riders. Uh, four different makes of bike. We're going to have a Honda CBR500 on the grid for the Frenchman Adrian Kine. Um, but the uh, the bulk of the field is made up of Kawasaki Ninja 400s, Yamaha R3s, and the KTM RC390s. Um, which we saw uh, appearing uh, last year. And there are going to be four of them on the grid this year. We'll preview that class in much greater detail um, in the run-up to the Aragon World Superbike round, which will be uh, in a couple of months' time. Uh, But World Superbike 300 has 50 entries for this year. Um, British Superbike news before we move on to uh, the bulk of the show and talking about Danny Pedroza. Uh, British Superbikes, um, and they have... 
basically filled the one remaining slot on the grid that was left open uh, before Christmas um, for 2019. That spot was at Build Base Suzuki. And Drake's been filled by Luke Stapleford, uh, who was conspicuous by his absence from the World Supersport entry list. We've now found out where he's going. Um, yeah. And it has to be said, um, assuming that Bradley Ray has recovered from the kind of the dip that he suffered at the end of 2018 uh, from such a strong start, uh, a build based Suzuki team of Bradley Ray and Luke Stapleford on paper looks pretty strong. It's very strong. Like Stapleford, we all know, dominated British Supersport a few years ago. Um, and when I say dominate, I mean beat him down by a country mile. He was completely dominant, and he was looking like one of the real, you know, British young talented hotshots in bike racing. Period. Um, but uh, yeah, it's we all know World Supersport's been kind of a hot mess for him since he got there a couple of years ago. You know, multiple bike changes, the team kind of collapsing around him a little bit, and he's not really worked out. I mean, now he's he's getting. He gets to go to British Superbikes, which I think was was I think he probably should have done that in the first place, quite frankly, or mm. try to angle for a seat there um, rather than jumping into World Supersport. And then that ladder can is, is problematic. There's no guaranteed way in, especially if you see how World Superbikes are shaken out this year with a lot of really good names missing out on seats. Mm. Um, so yeah, as far as I'm concerned, um, this I think this was always good. I think this was always the right move for. St- and he's got a really good bike underneath him. Suzuki is fast. It's, it, we all know with Bradley Ray, it was capable of winning races. Um, and when Suzuki finds those little gains, they seem to make a big difference. And that's what happened with Bradley Ray this past season. So Stapleford could come in and you know utilize the best of his talent. And then that could be a very strong team going forward. Even though they dropped Richard Cooper for him, which I do find a little bit eyebrow raising. Yeah, we were going to mention that. Richard Cooper, who... Um... I think we're both agreed on on this show on talent alone deserves to be on the British Superbike grid um, for for 2019. Although the the field just gets stronger and stronger, of course, with the likes of Scott Redding moving into British Superbikes and Javi Forres, of course, um, Mm. out of World Superbikes into British Superbikes for this year. Um, It it is almost a world-class field now in British Superbikes. Um, But Richard Cooper, of course, won the final round of last season in the wet at Brands Hatch. He's now gone to Superstock 1000, staying with the same team. He's going to be riding for Bull Bay Suzuki, but in Superstock 1000. So he's essentially going to be riding a uh, sort of dumbed-down version of the bike he rode last year. Um, now, Richard Cooper has already proven, Dre, that he can challenge for the title in Superstock 1000, and he'll surely be among the title favourites um, mm. for, for next season. And it kind of it, it asks an interesting question, which I think you can ask of a number of riders um, in, in the field. It's kind of, which would you rather be? Would you rather be... A midfielder in in a stronger field, or would you rather be winning? Um, and I'm not sure whether Richard Cooper, obviously, yeah, I don't think he's made the decision himself. He's essentially been forced down this route because they've signed Stapleford. Mm. But I guess from Cooper's point of view, he's probably going to do an awful lot of winning next year. Looks like it. I mean, Superstock 1000 isn't the most stacked of categories as it was a few years ago, and we've seen guys hop in and out of that category before, like Danny Bucken, who is a guy who has podium level speed in him in, in in the main series proper so yeah i think it's a very interesting debate you make like do you want to be the big fish and in, in, in or do you want to be fighting and scrapping in the midfield in british superbikes i mean 
I'm not sure which is the best way to go about it. I mean, you got I think you got to ask riders. I think you got to ask them what their motivations are. Is it um, is it a financial thing? Is it a matter of being on TV? Do you, is there no substitute for winning? You know, are, are you more strategic about how your career plays out? There's a lot of different factors at play here. Um, there's I don't think there's any easy answer to that one. But Cooper, on a sheer perspective of when it comes. To, the talent and what I think of him, I think he's more than good enough to to dominate that class this year. He's a fantastic, talented rider. Um, another guy like Petros, who we're going to mention in a minute, who's quite small but fully utilizes his size to ride very well indeed. He, he we all know he's a BSB multiple race winner, so he mm. he knows what he's doing and he knows how to win races, especially in slippery conditions too. Bit of a wet weather guy as well, but yeah. I, 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 I'm not sure Stapleton was a better was a better play on this one. Don't get me wrong. I, I, I think that's that's the sort of talent that is worth getting excited about when you compromise on a little bit. But at the same time, I'm, Richard Cooper is a quality rider and is a guy who, at minimum, should probably be in a midfield team in BSB. And yeah, not sure how that's going to play out for build base on this one. I know they're kind of still a little bit salty about Gintoli not working out, but hey, Bradley Ray's breakout season kind of made up for it. But it's 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 interesting. I'm not quite sure what the right move is on that one. Yeah, I guess time will tell on that one. I mean, you make a good point on Stapleford in terms of he doesn't have the super bike experience that Cooper has. All of his experience yeah. as a motorcycle racer predominantly is on super sport bikes. So we don't yeah. yet know whether he can make that step up um, to more powerful machinery. He's you know he's, he seems more at home on a super sport bike. So. So we shall see. Uh, we'll talk a lot more, of course, about British Superbikes as the year unfolds. Their season starts uh, at Silverstone on the national circuit around Easter time. Um, for this show, though, with uh, no racing to speak of over the winter, um, we have to find other things to talk about to fill our monthly or uh, <laughs> fortnightly shows. So we decided for this uh, this edition of uh, Bike Live episode 91 um, to do something that we didn't really have time to do at the end of last season with so much going on and championships being decided left, right and centre. And that's to celebrate the career of Danny Pedrosa, which of course is now as an active rider in, uh, in racing terms has now come to an end as he becomes a tester for KTM. And we will do that uh, right after this. Right, so you're back with us on Bike Live, episode 91. And let's talk about uh, Danny Pedrosa, who called time on his MotoGP career at the end of last year. Uh, it's a Grand Prix career, um, if you grow across all classes, um, that has spanned across 18 seasons from making his debut back in 2001. Um, and the first thing that stands out to us, Ray, well, we'll kind of go all around the houses we've got no real linear way of doing this uh, look back on Danny Pedrosa we'll probably go off on a few tangents as we talk about his career but there's one thing that immediately stands out I think when you look at Danny Pedrosa's career um, you just look at the sheer table of his career and there are very few riders that you could say particularly over this sort of longevity of career have done their entire career on one manufacturer of motorcycle mm. 18 years he's almost like a, a biking Brian Giggs isn't he the sort of one club yeah. man, um, where it's a measure really of how good Danny Pedrosa has been, but also how highly regarded he is or has been within Honda 
that he's stayed with that same manufacturer for 18 consecutive years. That's unbelievable. Like, you, like you, I'm glad you made the football same point is that in football for example those sorts of one club men are very rare these days it's seemingly that era i think of football i think has died i think managerial wise and player wise you just don't get that anymore where guys are um you know spending their entire careers at one club or them they're, they're recognizable for most for, for one club i think that era is thought passing us by and then bike racing it's very very rare now i mean it's a blessing in this in disguise where there's now more than one competitive manufacturer in the top flight now there's now arguably three or four which is great for the health of the sport because we've been, we've been dying to get this now for, for like a decade where it was either you're in orange or you're in blue and occasionally the guy in red might win too but like anything else would be just considered freakish now it's like, and then the one guy that has stood the test of time, and we will always know him in either the, the movie star colors in the in the, the days, and he was still a teenager working his way up. But most probably the orange of Repsol Honda that he spent his entire career there, an entire eighteen years of Honda backed machinery, which is incredible. Like that's in motorsport, that is so rare. In sport in general, that is so so rare to have such. Not just loyalty on Pedrosa's end to one manufacturer or one brand, and you know how he only we only ever really spoke about Pedrosa leaving Honda maybe this past year about possibly going to the Petronas back to Yamaha team. Mm. And they, hey, they even came out earlier this week and said straight up that hey, we very nearly got him basically, but he chose to retire instead. Um, but not as you said, not only the the fierce loyalty to. You know, to, to Honda, but also the belief that Honda's always had in him. I was about to say, which... yeah, the, the loyalty that's been shown in both directions. Um, mm-hmm. be- because when you because when you look at Honda, if you're talking about the MotoGP yeah, portion of Pedroza's career, we're talking about Repsol Honda, who, as we're going to discuss, weren't always the championship favourites through this this period, but they were always, you know, amongst the contenders. They were always front runners, um, and mm. they were which which the point I'm making is. Repsol Honda, basically, throughout that 12, 13-year period that Danny Pedrosa wrote for them, they were in a position financially and in terms of their stature. They could have had the pick of any rider they wanted uh, to ride for their bikes, which means that if any at any opportunity, they mm. could have decided, we don't want Danny Pedrosa, we're going to go get X uh, instead. Yet, they throughout that period, at no stage did Repsol Honda come close or even consider cutting Pedrosa. Never, not. I think only the only even half rumbling of this was twenty thirteen, and that was when some talented fella called Mark came along, who we all know was a truly a true transcendent talent. Which you know was even though he was rough around the edges, was still a once in a generation sort of talent, and you couldn't pass that opportunity up. You could make the case that back in two thousand and six, Pedrosa was that guy too. It, we, we forget that he had, you know, he had won two fifty titles, and you know he was freakishly good from a young age, and made his MotoGP debut. I want to say at twenty one, I think he made his top flight debut. Um, so, like, he was just under what became the age limit. That he will have, he will, he'll have been twenty. He wouldn't have turned twenty one until yeah. September in two thousand six. Yeah, so there you go. So he was 20 when he made his, his top flight debut, just like Marquez did in that sense. And again, he had the same, I'd argue, level of prestige and, and hype going into his, his top flight career that Marquez did back, you know, only just really seven years or so apart. Hmm. Um, 
and you're absolutely right. Repsol Honda was still coming off the Valentino Rossi era to a degree, where Rossi had brought them success in the early 2000s, and Nicky Hayden was a big flashy move because Hayden, you know, had come from America and he, he dominated out there, and you know, he, he had he had the odd win here or there. But they, and, but they, you're right, they could have had anyone they wanted in that top fight. They could have had maybe a Loris Caparossi or if they wanted to gamble on Sete Gibbonow or maybe take a punt on Casey Stoner at that point before Ducati's factory team did in the end. And well, we all know how well that turned out for them. But they had they had a who's who. I mean, Honda was, you know, or still is to this day, you know, one of the most reputable teams out there. It's one of the most recognizable teams out there. Um they have a reputation where they can get whoever they want. It's a, it's, it's, an, it's a seat that is naturally appealing. Um, and it, it has been for the best part of two decades now. And they, they gambled on a 20-year-old Pedrosa. And yeah, it worked out in the end. So you're absolutely right. Pedrosa was never going to be a sure thing. But when they actually gave him a chance, look how well it turned out. Absolutely. It worked out very, very well for them. Uh, indeed. Um We'll, we'll touch briefly on his time in the lower classes because, of course, he was uh, the dominant lightweight rider um, through the early part of the 21st century. He was essentially the dominant lightweight rider in another sense because he was lightweight himself. Um, he was he was a tiny young man back at the times when the, the lightweight classes in Grand Prix racing were 125 and 250 rather than Moto3 as it is now, which is a 250 class, and uh, Moto2, which for the last number of years has been a 600 class and, of course, will be 675 with Triumph next year um riders danny pedroza's class were able to make a career of themselves in the lower classes and he would win three consecutive world titles uh through 2003 to 2005 the first of those in one two five um winning the championship several rounds early um before getting injured shortly after winning the title in malaysia he would then miss the last two rounds due to injury and still win the championship by 57 points um from <laughs> from alex de angelis um, who was the runner-up that year. Um, Pedro's, of course, on the Honda, leading a, a triumph of Aprilia's um, just behind him. Um, and then his two years in 250s, um, back-to-back titles again. He won his first title comfortably um, ahead of Sebastian Porto uh, before taking back-to-back titles in 2005. And when I tell you that the top five in that 2005 250cc title were in this order, Danny Pedrosa, Casey Stoner, Andrea De Vizioso, Hiroshi Ayama, and Jorge Lorenzo. Um, it tells you the standard and the caliber of the rider in the class at that time that Danny Pedrosa didn't just beat, but beat convincingly, uh, winning some eight rounds on his way to winning the championship by 55 points from Stoner, who, as I mentioned, was the runner-up at that time. Um, but really, Dre, it was, it was a sort of this time that the... The Pedroza Lorenzo rivalry kind of first came to light. Mm. Yeah, that's where we first saw it happen. I mean, as you mentioned, what an incredible stack of talent that was in that 250 class that year in 2005. Four of the top five um, were world champions in some capacity, and, and even Hiroshi Ayama was a, was a veteran in MotoGP for a long time as well. Um, and was a championship runner-up in his own right um, later on in his career, but it was an it, that was the first shades of like I've mentioned this before, but it was the the beginning of the rise of Spain as a racing country again. I mean, like for a while it had been dominated by Italy and the the Americans, where the Americans had come over guys like Kenny Roberts Jr. and Nicky Hayden and had success. Um, and, and these were the two golden children, weren't they? 
Yeah, they like this was the revolution that kickstarted Spanish Grand Prix motorcycle racing again. Like Lorenzo and Pedrosa were both similar. And they like Lorenzo. If you ever watched the the uh, film hitting the apex, there's a great set of segments about this on from actually on on. I thought Lorenzo's segment was fascinating about how he was pretty much forced onto mini motos from the time he was, you know, two or three years old. And he was r- ridiculously disciplined. Like this was this was the career path that Lorenzo was going to go down one way or another. And you, you had that incredibly worksman's like Lorenzo come through at the same time as Pedrosa. I mean, Pedrosa jumped the queue by a couple of years by mm. comparison. It wasn't for a couple of years afterwards and Lorenzo... After Pedrosa's departure, Lorenzo stepped up and then well, by the time titles got, himself, yeah. Yeah, he won back-to-back titles himself in 06 and 07 before making his GP debut in 08. But by the time we got to 2010, those two were at war with each other. They hated each other and they were literally fighting for the Spanish tabloid Colomanches. And, you know, King of Spain had to force them to shake hands in Catalonia. Like, it was toxic between those two and it all started out here in 250s. But, uh, yeah, like, the, if you want to pinpoint really the moment where Spain got back on the map from a Viking standpoint, the mid two thousands that led to Lorenzo's resurgence to cut me up through the classes and eventually guys like Mark Marquez being on on the top of the pile. So uh, it, you can pinpoint it right back here to the mid two thousands and the rise of Pedrosa and basically in a sense in inspiring a lot of Spanish riders to have another crack at it. Mm, yeah, we are. And Danny Pedrosa would move into MotoGP. Um, as we mentioned, in 2006, uh, and mm. would win just his fourth Grand Prix um, mm. in the MotoGP Premier Class. And uh, I think we have to put this into into context, Dre, um, because people will say, well, Mark Marquez moved up and won his third attempt um, in, in the Circuit of the Americas back in 2013. But I think for, for Danny Pedrosa, who was, as I mentioned, a lightweight rider in every sense, he was he was tiny, and stepping onto you know the biggest, most powerful fire-breathing bikes in the world at a time when making the step up from the intermediate class to the premier class was probably the biggest and toughest it, where it ever was and probably will ever be oh, yeah. again. Moving from mm. 250cc motorcycles to 990cc bikes in the premier class. And Danny Pedrosa not only stepped up, but won immediately. It's crazy. You're right. I mean, again, let's not forget we are still talking about a five foot two, eight stone man <laughs> um, riding a fire breathing, two hundred and fifty horsepower, nine hundred and ninety cc four stroke. We forget just how difficult the four stroke was to ride. Many people. Yeah. That are he was second like on his debut. Yeah, this is bonkers. Like the the. the... The jump up in ferocity between 250s to MotoGP was, was, was bigger than it's ever been now. The sport's kind of calibrated that way, and the Moto2 bikes now being 600s, they're a bit more relatable in that sense. But you look at you look at that now, where it, and look at that back then, in, in 2006, where you're going from a 250 with maybe 80 horsepower to a 250 horsepower MotoGP bike with three times the power um, and four times the capacity of engine. And Pedrosa came in and was on podium on debut and only took him four rounds to win a race. He was a freak. You know, he, was the, he was a freak before they became fashionable yeah. um, in, in, in that sense. So 
yeah, it's it's kind of crazy how quickly that how, how quickly Pedrosa was able to adapt to the top flight. It is a testament to his level of ability. And again, as mentioned, he's a tiny man. He's mm. given up literally two to three stone to all his rival competitors out there. And when physicality is such an important part of riding these bikes, it's an incredible handicap um, to have. And he was still so good right <laughs> away. He was, and uh, he, he moved up to MotoGP at the same time, in the same year, as Casey Stoner, um, and, mm. and scored near enough double the points of him. Um, now, that ha- has to be put into some context in that Pedroza was with the factory Epsilon Honda team, Stoner was with the LCR satellite team, and Stoner was much more of a rough diamond at that time. He, mm. he was a bit of a crasher at that point. He crashed out of six races that year. Um, and missed another through injury from having crashed too. Um, so Danny Pedrosa outscoring Stoner by that margin has a little to do with that. But Stoner was certainly not the, the finished article that Pedrosa was at the same age and the same stage in their careers. Uh, but as I mentioned, Danny Pedrosa would win just his fourth Premier Class race, um, which took place at Shanghai back at a time when bikes went there as well as cars. Um, and <laughs> would win there from pole position with the fastest lap, winning... Uh, by a second and a half from his teammate, uh, Nicky Hayden, who um, must have been wondering what on earth was going on in this team that had been his um, back in uh, the mid-2000s to see a young Spanish rookie come up, beat him on his first ride in, in Jerez in mm. um, early 2006, where Pedroza was second out of Hayden in third, and then win, uh, leading home Hayden in just the fourth round of that season. Uh, now, Nicky, of course, would have the last laugh, just about, uh, in that season, but not before a monumental falling out at Estoril um, later that year. Now, it is one of the greatest motorcycle races ever seen. It's one of the most talked about MotoGP races of all time for two key reasons. The battle to the finish between Elias, Roberts Jr., Rossi and Edwards that was decided by two thousands of a second and the championship implications that had, but also mm. due to the one of the most talked about one of the most shocking and stunning incidents ever seen in MotoGP uh, when Danny Pedrosa as teammate to Nicky Hayden knocked the championship leading Hayden off uh, at Astoril um, early in that race when Hayden was leading the world championship it could easily have cost Hayden his one and only shot as it turned out of realizing his dream of being MotoGP world champion and Danny Pedrosa who we shouldn't forget was actually a championship contender in his own right until midway through that season um, when he, um, as it's going to become a bit of a theme, picked up injuries and had a few rounds where he wasn't quite on the pace and fell back. Only finished 37 points off the championship lead in the end himself that year. Um, but in the end, had to play a supporting role to Hayden. And Dre, that incident at Estoril, um, it, it, it's still an incident that gets talked about. And now it's still an incident that kind of beggars belief now that it happened um, back at Estoril in 2006. But the way Danny Pedrosa helped by Hayden, it has to be said, handled that and bounced back from that um, was a testament to him for a rider who'd only just turned 21. That was a lot to take in. Oh, God, yeah. Um, watch the Motorsport 101 YouTube channel. I made it <laughs> this little while ago. Um, but yeah, shameless plug aside, I mean, yes, this was one of the most iconic MotoGP races ever, in my opinion. It was a race that going into it, five men could have still won the championship. Pedrosa was the outs- was on the outside looking in of those five. Um, you know, Pedrosa still had an outside chance at the title at that point in time, and they were running. I think it was second and third at the time, and Hayden had 
literally just past Pedrosa the lap before in quite an aggressive manner um, at, at that same corner. Um, it was it was a very aggressive but fair move. Hayden had come through. I literally joking said video that Pedrosa, you're probably best off not retaliating there because that corner in Estoril famously has a bump on the apex. If, and there's a, there's a bump on it. And if you ride over it in the wrong way, it's very, very easy to lose the front and tip it. And that's precisely what Pedrosa did a lap later. It was, um, I, I dare I say, a bit of a red mist moment um, with, with Pedrosa just like, thinking like he had to retaliate straight away when he really didn't, especially when you look at how the race played out and how Estoril was very conducive towards... Uh, you know, track racing and, and, you know, pack racing and it being close. We saw it, as we all, as we all know, it went down to literally a, a strip of paint on the finish line. Like, you've seen the emotion. Nicky Hayden loses his mind when he gets taken out in that in that moment in the gravel trap. because And, and you can't blame him because you mm. look at it and you go, well, he at the time we thought, well, that's it. Title over. Mm. And um, and I, you've I, got to imagine that Danny Pedrosa must have thought because we always talk naturally mm. and quite rightly about how that must have affected Hayden um, mm. to to lose his dream. But Danny Pedrosa didn't mean to knock him off, and you, of you, can, just, you can just imagine just imagine the mental turmoil Danny must have been going through that day as a 21 year old rookie, thinking, "I've just cost the bloke his dream. I've just cost him the world title." Yeah, you could you could tell like and I. Like... <laughs> If there's one thing I always like about that, it's always been a classy, honest guy. What you see is what you get with Pedrosa. He, he never has spoken out of turn. I've said this about Danny in, in that sense where it's like, he, I, I've never heard a bad word said about him in the paddock, ever. Not in the nearly 20 years he's been in it. Um, he's just one of those genuinely good people. And... You could see he was ravaged with guilt. So much so, he said for Valencia, I will get out of the way for Hayden to help him win the title. He felt like he owed Nicky and he owed Honda at least that for it basically being accountable for what happened um, in Estoril. And we all know motorsport is packed full of team orders moments and teammates clashing with each other. Um, Petrosa handled that with an incredible sense of maturity and, and understanding for a kid who was only 21 at the time. Um, it's it's a rare thing to see such decency and sportsmanship given out for him. It was a guy at the time was still a literal title rival. That was it was his teammate, sure, but they were both competing for the same title. They were both still eligible to win it when that crash happened. Um, so for for him to come out and do that afterwards, um, was an incredibly noble gesture and a, a good reminder of just the maturity of Pedrosa to be able to handle what was one of the most famous MotoGP incidents of all time, a moment that went viral back for 06, and you know, a moment that will be talked about forever in, in mm. MotoGP, that Repsol on the clash at Estoril 06, and, and how it very nearly cost Hayden the title. Thanks, Tony. Checks in the mail still. Yeah, as, as Jerry mentioned, it didn't cost him the title in the end because of what happened, not just in the remainder of mm. that race, but in the race that followed in Valencia. Uh, Valentino Rossi, of course, would crash out of the final round, having been overtaken by both Hondas and several others, it has to be said, early in that race. Um, Rossi would fall off. Hayden and Pedroza would finish third and fourth, respectively, and Hayden won the championship. Um, and, and the rest is history, uh, as they say, and, and one of the most heartwarming moments in, in motorsport and Grand Prix motorcycle racing history uh, took place as Hayden realised his dream 
of winning the Motorcycle Racing World Championship. And really, from that point on, the balance of power shifted, didn't it, within that Repsol Honda team, and it became Pedroza's team. Um, even as recently as the start of the next season, where uh, Repsol Honda had a, had a brand new bike, uh, famously titled the Ghost Bike, um, that, that wasn't really uh, on the pace initially. Hayden struggled uh, by comparison to Pedroza, who became, uh, as a result, the lead rider within that team. And Pedroza would go on to finish yeah. as the championship runner-up um, in 2007. Uh, runner-up to a dominant Casey Stoner, who, as I mentioned, was rookie um, at the same time that Danny was. But he landed the switch to the factory Ducati team uh, just as they became dominant with their new bike, their all-powerful bike yeah. that was just blowing riders away on the main straights in Qatar and, and Bridgestone tyres, which would become a uh, a subject of controversy later on as um, Pedroza, a couple of years later, would switch from Michelin's to Bridgestone's mid-season um, because he was unhappy yeah. with the Michelin's and how they were performing. Um and Pedroza would argue that he he perhaps had a shot at the title as recently as the round that Stoner won it in in Japan, but of course had a, a pretty painful crash through that weekend, and and Stoner went on to win the title. But mm. you, you kind of feel that Pedroza, in some ways, although he's always been in one place, and that's Repsol Honda, you kind of have the feeling through his career that he was in the wrong place at the wrong time on the number of occasions, um, and and Repsol yeah. Honda who we know now as the dominant force in motorcycle racing and through a lot of their existence have been the dominant team. It, it seems as though the years where Danny Pedrosa was not only the leader within that team, but also at his peak were the years when Repsol Honda were going through something of a transition. Yeah. Yeah. Like the Hayden era had, had come and gone and you know, it probably had not worked out, um, you know, quite the way that, uh, it wanted to. I mean, Hayden won the world title, but it was clear as the years had gone on that he just wasn't the the guy they wanted to build the team around. And you know, as as this time had gone on, it had become clear that Pedrosa was the guy to lead that team going forward, and he was the staple Honda guy. While at the same time, um, yeah, just the sports around him was changing. In that, yeah, Casey Stone uh, obviously had the the Exahead missile of a Ducati in 2007 that was mm. literally the, the first six year miles of the 800s, hour faster. we should point out. Yeah. Yeah. The first year of the 800s and Ducati were literally six miles an hour faster down Qatar than everybody else. <laughs> yeah. Um, it was, it was a bit unfair, um, shall we say. Um, and, you know, Pedrosa was leading that team um, going forward. And yeah, as you say, as, as, as time was going on, um, yeah, we, we saw that Pedrosa step up to the team. Again, we saw Rossi come back to Yamaha again, had another couple of titles. By that point, Lorenzo was really starting to find himself as a rider. 2010 comes around, and that was arguably the most consistent season in MotoGP history. Um, like, we, we literally saw, you know, Lorenzo have a 383-point season where he finished, I think, every race in the top four that year. And it was virtually unstoppable with, with that level of, of, of form and consistency. Pedrosa, again, missed out due to Lorenzo's dominance. Um, Stoner went to Honda in 11. Again, Stoner, we all know he's just an incredible talent. And he, he fit the Honda like a glove. And that was a three-bike team. So it was always going to be really hard for anyone to stand out. But Stoner won 11 times anyway. Um, so it didn't matter in that sense. And yeah, by the, by the time we... The 2012 was really his best chance. When Stoner hurt himself in Indianapolis. But again, Lorenzo <laughs> was too good. Um, just a little bit better than him. Like two or three percent better. And that was enough. 
Um, and by the time we got 2013, Marquez was there, and we, we all know the story with Marquez. So it was just... I don't want to say it, was, it, it wasn't like right place right time, because he was never going to leave Honda, and if anything, they got, if, if anything, Honda got a bit frustrated with him for not winning them a big one. But at the same time, he became the, the the leader of that team, and and until Stoner came along, and Stoner gave him the platform for a bit more temporary success. Hmm. Um, and of course, market. we were talking about an era at that point where, uh, as we touched on, Ducati were incredibly powerful in in every respect. They had Casey Stoner as their as their lead rider, who they basically built the team around, even though Caparossi was still there um, for a couple of years. And of course, we shouldn't forget the the all conquering, all powerful Rossi Yamaha combination that was dominant at that time. Of course, two thousand six and seven um, were were barren years by their standards. Although Rossi still nearly won the two thousand six title, um, two thousand seven they didn't really come close. But back into oh eight and oh nine. Rossi would win both of those titles at a canter, and of course Lorenzo would take over from him in 2010. So, yeah. uh, even though Pedroza was Honda's lead rider through that period, they still weren't a really a match for for Yamaha and arguably Ducati when Stoner was healthy. Um, so, so in many ways, that was that was the frustration for Pedroza um, that he couldn't quite um, overcome those two combinations in that time. Um, but, but as I say, as, as, his, as his career went on, he would, he, would, he, would, he would take on some of the best riders this sport has ever seen, Dre. Um, right. Not just the likes of Rossi and Stoner that I've mentioned um, on different motorcycles, but he, he would race against Davizioso on equal machinery through 2009 um, and then 2011 when uh, Davizioso was in the factory Honda team. 2010, Davizioso was still on the Honda, but in a different team. Um, and, and Stoner would join Repsol Honda in 2011. Before, of course, Marquez would take over upon Stoner's retirement. Now, Danny Pedrosa ultimately hasn't beaten any of those to a championship. Um, but mm. he has beaten them ample times each through his times with the team. Um, and I've often drawn the comparison um, between Danny Pedrosa and Andy Murray um, across sports. Now, Dan- Andy Murray did ultimately win major titles. Danny Pedrosa didn't ultimately win a championship in MotoGP. But mm. Danny Pedrosa, I, I think, is is as good as the best riders of, of many, many eras. You can go back into the year, years of the 90s, the likes of Duan and, and Crevier, who uh, rode for Repsol Honda. I think Danny Pedrosa could hold his own against either of those. Um, and I think he could hold his own against uh, the best riders of, of, of several eras. But unfortunately for him, and ultimately this will, will always be held against Danny Pedrosa, he had to ride in the same era as Valentino Rossi, Jorge Lorenzo, and Casey Stoner, and Mark Marquez, Four of the mm-hmm. greatest riders in the history of our sport, um, yeah. who, with a bit of rough maths, have what they've won over twenty world championships between them. Yeah, I mean Marquez has seven, Rossi has nine. That's sixteen. Lorenzo has, has five. Um, you know that that already is twenty-one. Yeah, Stone um, has a couple. Stone has a couple as well. So yeah, you like. Pedrosa is absolutely in that same discussion yeah. with all of those dudes, in in, in my opinion. Um, yeah, it's it's incredible. Like that's one of the main reasons really he's been so unlucky and missed out is that he's had to race in the greatest era for talent that this sport has ever seen. Like we are, we don't think we're ever gonna get this. This is like. 
we're in the middle, like, I'd say actually, I'd argue we're kind of in the twilight of this era now with Lorenzo being, you know, in his early 30s now. Dovi is in his early 30s. Pedros is obviously just retired. Rossi somehow is still going. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> um, and he turns 40 next year. Um, and Pedrosa is absolutely in that conversation. He has beaten every great quality rider you can think of besides Marquez in the last decade and a half in some capacity. He's mm. a truly exceptional rider and he deserves to be mentioned in that pantheon of... Like I said, he's had to race week against four of probably the top 12 riders who ever graced this sport. Um, and he has been more than a match for all of them on several occasions. He is a truly brilliant bike rider. And, like, if you, you'd be doing him a service if you didn't mention him in the same conversation as all of those guys we've just mentioned, because Pedrosa had a key role to play in not only, as I mentioned before, the Spanish Revolution in terms of biking talent, but also what's brought the sport into the modern era. Like, we've seen all of that. Um, and Pedrosa has been, a, has been a, a key part of that for for years and years and years. And he's been a staple top flight perennial contender for over a decade in the top flight. That's incredibly hard to do. This is, this was really like the first year where the wheels have fallen off in that sense in terms of Pedrosa's form and ability. But that's because he's been beaten up and he's been through a, a long, long career. Um He's an, he's an exceptional talent, and to do this with that much talent around him is incredible. Mm. Deserves a lot of credit. A MotoGP championship runner-up on three separate occasions, um, which, again, just tells you the, the depth of talent he was up against. 2007, he, he beat Rossi head-to-head that season, but lost to Stoner. 2010, he beat Rossi, he beat Stoner, but lost to Lorenzo. Uh, and likewise, uh, in 2012. Um I mean, some of, some of the key moments through his career inevitably leads us to talk, Dre, about injuries. Um, because the obviously every motorcycle rider gets injured through their career, but perhaps may, precious few have been injured as often uh, and at the as sort of poor times uh, as as Danny Pedrosa. 2010 springs to mind, where of course he was he was a, a very much a second favourite to Lorenzo by the time he travelled to Bategi, but that terrible accident where his throttle stuck open um, mm. and, and he crashed in practice and we wouldn't see him for the next three rounds um, cost yeah. him any chance of pushing Lorenzo close um, for that world championship the very next season, 2011 the, the tangle with Simoncelli at Le Mans um, that saw him break his collarbone and miss the next three races um, was a real shame for him that basically ruled him out of any hope of, of challenging Stoner for that year's championship. Um, of course, by the time Pedroza returned to, to action at Mugello, he was out of contention, essentially, points-wise. Mm. Um, but I think 2012, you mentioned it already, this wasn't a year where he missed a round through injury, but this was probably the round where, above any season, you kind of look at it and think, this could have been Danny's um, at the end of 2012. Right. He won... He won six of the final eight races um, that season. Probably the best run of form of Danny Pedrosa's career. Um, but unfortunately, ultimately, it's the two that he didn't win um, that, that stick out. The the crash in Australia two rounds from the finish ultimately cost him it because that was the round that Lorenzo wrapped the title up, but he had to do the chasing. So you can kind of forgive him that one. But the round above any other, of all the races through Danny Pedrosa's career, all 295 of them, 
the one that I look back on with the most regret with is Mizano 2012, um, where Danny Pedrosa's on pole position. His bike won't start on the grid before the main race, so he has to start from the back of the field. And then as he's coming through the field, he gets taken out in someone else's accident. That old someone else being Hector Barbary who has a crash and then just basically wipes Pedrosa out at the end of the back straight. Um, Pedrosa would lose that championship ultimately by just 18 points. Um, and with all due respect to Jorge Lorenzo, who was a brilliant champion that year, finished on 350 points and won the yeah, title. But Danny Pedrosa would finish that year on 332 points and wouldn't win the whole thing. And you kind of look back and feel that. I mean, when the guy did, when the guy finished, he finished every race, or the, every race he finished, should I say, he was in the top four, and every mm. race he finished, bar one, was on the podium. That was a yeah. that was a world champion caliber season, and ultimately, it kind of boiled down to that disastrous five minutes at Misano. We forget that outside of Lorenzo's two DNFs that season, he finished every race he he finished that season first or second. Yeah. Again, it's, it's the unfortunate, yeah, and only won by eighteen points. Yeah, it's crazy. It is the most, like, ridiculous set of circles. Like, I don't think we'll ever see somebody win from school 332 points and not win the title. That's more than enough as a winning total in many an era and in many a season that absolutely would have done it. And it it just, oh, it just, it's awful that that, that Masano one you got to you got to look at it and you just got to go well damn because yeah. it was just so unlucky the bike didn't start and then when it did he got collected um and that not that we knew it at the time was what ultimately did him in um like he, if he if he recovers and you know gets into it gets into the top 6 he still will, he, he might even win the title with that i mean australia again again those are the two races that stood out he went on a tear at the end of the year he got the better of lorenzo in those head-to-heads all the way through the end of the season um and then it just wasn't enough 332 points was not enough to win the title i just find that i i i find that terrifying yeah in points wise it was his best ever season um Mm. and i mean 332 that would have won him the MotoGP World Championship in any of the last four seasons. Um, it would have won him the championship in 2009 when Rossi won it. Uh, it would have won him the championship, of course, in 2006, where it was a relatively low number um, that Hayden won it with, the 2-5-2. Um, but yeah, not only did he, as we've already discussed, come up against some of the greatest of the sport, but dominant champions. Um, you know, it's how it's. We've already discussed how in previous shows and previous years how infrequent it really is in MotoGP that we have final round championship deciders, and that's because the championship champion invariably wins it comfortably. He often invariably dominates yeah. it and wins it by a mile, and and it's often not been uh, a rider within Pedrosa's team that's done it. Um, I, I, some of these great wins. I don't know if there's any wins that stand out to you, Dre, in Pedrosa's career, but one that stands out to me was later that season. I was kind of glad Pedrosa got it. To round mm. off that season, the final round in Valencia uh, of yes. 2012, where it was a bizarre start to the race, where half the field, um, because it was a flag-to-flag race, started from the pit lane because they decided at the end of the formation lap to change tyres from wets to slicks. Pedrosa mm. was among them. Still to this day, with the exception of that bizarre race at the Saxon Ring, where practically everyone started from the pit lane, um, to this day, the only MotoGP race that has been won via a pit lane start. Yeah, and uh, like it's even it's like it's even crazier. We get the Katsunaga Suka was second that day. Yeah, 
It was a fun day. Uh, it was a fun race. Um, yeah, the only ever race won by a pit lane start, Pedrosa was rampant that day. Like it was, he was ridiculous. Um, that that um, that that day in Valencia, so so fast, just roared through the field in in dramatic fashion, and was just so confident out there on what was still very very slippery conditions. Conditions that Ron... we thought early in Pedrosa's career that he couldn't ride it. Yeah, we we all thought, that, oh, he's not whatever guy. He can't he can't handle the bike in the. Uh, well, no. Um, it turns out that he could. He he was super fast at, at that point in time. Um, yeah, com- completely. He was so so good, and and that was that was probably the one that like the Pedrosa race besides Estrello Six that stands out to me the most. I also want to uh, uh, mention Aragon in uh, in 2015 in the fight against Valentino Rossi. Mm. Um, and a nice reminder of, of what Pedrosa was capable of. Because we, we, we weren't talking about Pedrosa in quite the same context as like a title threat and whatnot by 2015. But in a race where Lorenzo had obviously taken off and won, because you know, we all know he loves it. Um, Rossi and Pedrosa were in the fight for second that day, and they got into a dogfight. Um, <laughs> uh, they got into a dogfight that day. It was a really, really great fight. Uh, and Pedrosa just about came out, which was actually a bit of a minor surprise, given that you know they were both fighting for the title. Um, and yeah, like Pedrosa was title spoiler. Well, before we knew the other major yeah. title spoiler <clears throat> of that season, <clears throat> but uh, Pedrosa, you know, you know, won a, a, a good clean fight um, that that day with with, with Valentina Rossi and Aragon, while it was already in the podium doing the shark fin celebration. It was a fun weekend. Yeah, it was. And uh, I mean, some of the other victories, I mean, later that season, you've already talked about the uh, the role of title spoiler that someone else played that season, Mark Marquez, um, and what happened in Sepang that year. It, it, it's still criminal that it gets forgotten how dominant Danny Pedrosa was that day um, in, in winning the race by a country mile whilst that madness was happening behind him, uh, several seconds behind him um, as it goes. Um Earlier that same season as well, 2015, uh, we've already talked about how Danny Petrosa, for a long time in his MotoGP career, was pathetic in the wet. Um, but <laughs> but uh, but as but as, but as recent as uh, Mategi 2015, in pouring rain in those wet conditions where we were expecting it to be Rossi versus Lorenzo as they were found chanting for the championship and they were together on the front row. And Danny Petrosa came from nowhere to beat the pair of them by, by, by quite comfortably um, in the wet conditions, proving that he is a man... <laughs> for all days, all weathers, all conditions. Uh, and a terrific win there. It's a shame in many ways he didn't win a Grand Prix at all last season because it would have completed a, a MotoGP career that would have seen him win uh, in every championship season he competed in, in the Premier Class. The only seasons, as I said at the start of the show, that he didn't win in through his entire Grand Prix career were his first and his last. Um, and this season, 2018, was the only career in his entire Grand Prix career the only season that he did not stand on the podium at all. Um, he, he even did that in his rookie one two five season. And if I, if I run you through his final championship positions, Dre, from 2001 mm. to, to last year, 8th, 3rd, 1st, 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 5th, 2nd, 3rd, 3rd, 2nd, 4th, 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 4th, 6th, 4th, and then 11th last year. No rider, not even Rossi, not even Lorenzo, perhaps Marquez, but hasn't done it over that length of time yet, can claim to have been that good for that long. No. Like, 
Valentino might be the only guy that comes close, and even then he had a couple of rough patches with the Ducati era, yeah. and you know, when his, his return to Yamaha, we we forget, didn't go very smoothly until a couple of years later, really. Um, Pedrosa has been the consistently top-tier rider of the last 20 years, um, which... To say a riding a, a career has lasted twenty years in the world of bike racing is a rare, rare spectacle in the modern era. Again, Valentino, only the only really guy in there that comes close now. And we all know he's a freak in that context, anyway. Mm. But to be able to be a Grand Prix race winner, I mean, like, you know how how many brilliant riders have come through the sport and never even won one Grand Prix, and let alone a guy who's done it for. You know, sixteen consecutive seasons. Yeah. He, he he was a Grand Prix race winner. Pedrosa um, has fifty four career wins across all classes. I think that's about seventh on the all time list, if I remember correctly. Um, isn't that yeah? yeah and thirty one of those in the top class. Yeah, thirty one top flight wins. That's an incredible number. That holds up with the very best his sports ever had. Um, in 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 and like. The, the way I see it, he he's a Hall of Famer. He he moonwalks into the Hall of Fame. He's the greatest rider to have never won a top flight title. <coughs> yeah, just just to, just to confirm you on the figures, he is equal seventh all time. Yeah, for most Grand Prix wins, level with Mick Doohan. Yeah, Mick Doohan, and uh, he, he he had quite the career mm-hmm. um, in in that sense. Uh, like he he the only riders ahead of him. The only riders ahead of him are Agostini Rossi. Nieto, Halewood, Marquez, Lorenzo, and of course he's leveled with Dewan. True greats. Yeah. Like, you're talking about the greatest riders that have walked this earth are on that list in some capacity. And Pedrosa's in the conversation. And like you said, the testament to, like, when you put it all together, 54 career wins, three world titles, you know, a runner up in the top flight on three occasions, a top three finisher on seven occasions, a Grand Prix winner. For 16 consecutive years, um, uh, a guy that has overcome hellacious injury um, and and physical limitations, given his size in a sport where it's such a massive factor, and the fact he's he, he's left with his his reputation completely untarnished, he, he walks out, you know, as a real stand-up, honourable guy in, in this sport. I remember seeing like the great stories of people like Ben Spees coming out and talking about Pedrosa and saying that, you know, my first day in GP, Pedrosa sat down and he wanted to talk to me and he's been a lifelong friend ever since. Basically, that's the sort of guy that Pedrosa is. He is an infectiously likable, classy man who we can, like, like... It, it's, it's like 2019 is going to be an incredible year for talent. We all know that, but it does feel like a hole is missing, knowing that Pedrosa is not there, which <clears throat> is crazy. When you when you look at it, you just go, "Wow!" Like first time in over a decade that we're not going to see Pedrosa on the top flight. It's weird seeing that grid without him and seeing Lorenzo there. Instead, he's become such a staple of MotoGP. But he's a truly incredible bike rider, and his story and how he got to this point. And despite all the circumstances, it just shows you just how special a talent he is. They've, there's only been one Lapidrosa like that, really. And uh, yeah, he's, he's pretty special. He is pretty special. Beautifully summed up. And we, we, we thank Danny Pedrosa for the memories across his MotoGP uh, career. As, as we've mentioned, it, it spanned 295 races um, across all classes. He won 54 of them. Um, so uh, just short of one in six ratio 
153 podiums, so more than a 1 in 2 ratio um, for getting on the podium. 49 pole positions, 64 fastest laps, over 4,000 points, and those three world titles, two of which were in 250cc in back-to-back years, and one in 125s. Those three titles coming in consecutive years, 2003, 4, and mm. 5. Um, this month of GP season, as we mentioned, will go on without Danny Petrosa in 2019. And before we go, let's look ahead to what is probably going to dominate our next show on Bike Live in a couple of weeks' time, and that is the Sepang MotoGP preseason test, um, which mm. takes place uh, very, very soon. Um, what are we looking for in this one, Dre? I mean, it's, it's going to be a test that takes place without Pedroza, as we mentioned, he won't be on the KTM. It'll take place without Lorenzo, who won't be on the Honda. It's going to be probably a half-fit Mark Marquez. Um, so there are many, many sort of riders and teams' performances that we might have to take with a pinch of salt. Ducati won't run their new frame until the mm. Qatar test. So I guess the team that we're looking at mostly, much like we did in Valencia, to see what they've done over the winter are Yamaha. Yeah, that's probably fair to say. We're going to, we're going to find out what the bike looks like first. Um, mm. I'm sure that'll be interesting in its own right. I have a two-to-one bet with Ryan that the bike's going to be black. He thinks it's still going to be blue. More more on that next episode. <laughs> um, I suspect I'll be making good money on this for yeah. some time. But um, <laughs> but yeah, Yamaha is the big smoking gun. We, we all know Honda. Honda was very happy coming out of Valencia. Ducati seemingly was very happy coming out of Valencia. Yamaha was still a lot of their struggles were brought up, mm. and again at Hareth because the, the, because they yeah. were found. What was weird because Yamaha ended up finishing the season very strongly. You know, mm. won in Australia, probably would have won in in Sepang had Rossi not fallen off, and then were on pole right. for for Valencia before it rained on the Sunday. Um, mm. And you know, Rossi was in the fight for that race as well. Though as I say, it wasn't the pouring rain. And then Vinales topped the test in Valencia, but. And we saw more with Delhi quick on the Yamaha as well. But then Jerez, by comparison, they weren't particularly strong. And they didn't still seem to be completely certain in their heads which direction they were going to go in um, right. for the 2019 bike. And given how late it now is, um, we're talking, you know, end of January here. If they get it wrong and they turn up for the test in Sepang and they've got it wrong, they're really against the clock to remedy those problems. It's a problem. Remember, they've got to lock in their engine homologation. So, yeah, like th- this is going to be a problem. Like I mentioned, and David mentioned this in his preseason preview as well for 2019, saying, "Well, it's it's becoming pretty evident that they're going to have to make their minds up soon. Who is going to be their rider? They're going to develop the bike around. They can't. Like, it's clear that Maverick and Valentino want very different things out of what the Yamaha is producing right now. Vinales has been openly frustrated about how Ramon Forcada wouldn't let him be a bit more radical when it came to development changes and and obviously setup changes for the bike. And well, last season didn't really help because while well, Valentino won and got the plaudits for a, a for you know for dragging that bike into play on numerous mm. occasions he only was better than maverick by five points in the end so it was kind of inconclusive on that one if you're looking at it from a from a purely impartial standpoint yamaha's gonna have to make a call on this pretty soon like, like are you going to going to ride valentino rossi until he can go no longer or are, are you making this the maverick vinales team now and you're gonna sit, let rossi sail into the sunset like they've got to make a decision on this now because if if they keep being indecisive, Maverick is going to win another title. And if Yamaha goes another year without a major title, 
and they only have maybe one win for the season like they did this past season, Jarvis could be out of that team. Like, to, mm. to, we've already had, like, crew chiefs and other guys apologize for the team. We've seen guys move on from Yamaha as a result of this already. They're under a lot of pressure for this one to be successful. I don't think Yamaha's big ups are going to tolerate another year of incompetence. So this is a massive test for Yamaha and where they're at compared to everybody else in the field. Yes, we will uh, We will discuss that on our next uh, Bike Live episode 92, which will, in all probability, be two weeks' time. It will be the other side of the Zapang test, basically. Mm. Um, so let's keep an eye out for that. We'll, uh, we'll announce the details on social media and, indeed, on the Discord server, which, uh, if you would like to be a part of um, for this off-season... Um, just shoot either of us or any of the Monospot one-on-one regulars that you listen to on either our podcast uh, a message uh, however you can get in touch with us be it Twitter, Facebook or any other way and we'll sort you out with an invite um, into our Discord server for this winter break um, if you want to be part of it regularly uh, back us on Patreon um, patreon.com forward slash Motorsport 101 if you back us at a $5 level you get the podcast earlier than everyone else if you back us at a $10 level you do get access to our Discord server uh, permanently, and you can listen to these podcasts live as they happen. Um, other places you can find us: facebook.com forward slash motorsport one hundred and one. Uh, on Twitter, we are at motorsport underscore one hundred and one. Our YouTube channel is youtube.com forward slash motorsport one hundred and one, and our website is motorsport one hundred and one Don't forget, of course, you can find our podcast everywhere where all good podcasts are released, and that now does include Spotify. Uh, so uh, all the details, as I mentioned, motorsport one hundred and one. Com. Um, the Monospot 101 podcast itself returns next week, I believe, Dre. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm going to... I think it's episode 177 are we up to now. Um, it, 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 it's, it's that. We're getting into such high numbers now that it is difficult to keep track. Um, yeah. But um, but actually, quite even though it is still January, there's going to be quite a lot to talk about next week because we have the Santiago Ypri and a race that one of our uh, Patreon backers, Cam, is particularly looking forward to, the Rolex 24. He's not mentioned it at all, honestly. No. Um, <laughs> and our, our man, Christopher the Hardy, is going to be actually live there at Daytona. Well, friend of the show, Lizzie Worth, is down there as well. She's been a guest for us on multiple occasions. She's down there um, as well. But yeah, it, it is a massive weekend. Again, as mentioned, Santiago Epre in Chile this weekend. A big one there. Well, I wonder, is BMW still going to be on top? Is Houston going to come into play again? And will the BMWs not try and take each other out this week? That would probably be preferable. So yeah, the Santiago E-Pre this weekend and the big one, the Imps Rolex 24 hours of Daytona, one of our favorite races of the year. Um, the the landmark event on the Imsa calendar. And basically, as I like to say, the all-star game of motorsport. Stuffy mm-hmm. race of champions and nonsense. Um, so before we, we, we get another 50 think pieces about how an esports guy beat Lucas Degrassi. As hilarious as that is. Yeah, it is. Um, <laughs> so all of that, the Rolex 24, the Race of Champions, and the Santiago E-Pre as well, all in episode 177 of Motorsport 101, and that'll be like around about this time next weekend. Yep, yeah, so uh, do keep your eyes out for that. Uh, as I mentioned, we'll be back for episode 92 in a couple of weeks' time to uh, talk all about the Sepang test. And then we will be very quickly into motorbike racing season once again. Episode 93, in all probability, despite the obvious opportunity to build it around Marc Marquez. Um, episode 93 will almost certainly be uh, our World Superbike and Super Sport season preview. Uh, so uh, keep an eye out for that into February. Um, but that's all for now from Andre Harrison and myself. Uh, we thank you for listening and we thank Danny Pedroza for 18 wonderful years in Grand Prix motorcycle racing from the two of us. We will see you in a fortnight. <laughs>